Yes. My uh, left ear is again blocked from allergies, so I feel like I'm talking into an echo chamber. So if I talk today at all, make sure if it's not high enough, wave at me. Uh, did you all get a uh, copy of the speakers uh, for this course, the teachers? If you did, I just will refer you to the left-hand bottom column where Zev Rosenberg's uh, bona fides are mentioned. <laughs> but we don't really need to go through all of those things today. Some of you don't know him, some of you do. Uh, I met Zev three years ago, the first time we ever taught together here. I introduced him, uh, whether he liked it or not, as a modern day Apollos. And over the last three years, I have uh, been totally enriched by his friendship, his intellect. It's a joy uh, to be with him. We uh, eat breakfast every Wednesday at uh, 9.30, and we have a great time learning together. So you are going to have a treat today. He also uh, told me that uh, I should be ready to sweep up a tad of broken glass today. Does anyone know what that means when speakers talk like that? Uh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. When, when, when people say, ah, well, there's going to be a little bit of broken glass here today, what does that mean? When we're That's a metaphor that teachers and speakers use. You don't know it? It'd be like a little bit of glass in this brother's head, and we, we introduce a construct or an idea in there that that's not been in there before, and it has a tendency to crack stuff. Have you ever felt that happening to you when you're listening to somebody that there's like grass, glass cracking in your head? Okay, so that's scary, but it's also a good thing. And the good thing about it is, once the glass gets broken, what can we do with it? What do we do with broken glass for, for 1,500 years in the Christian tradition? We make stained glass out of it. We make beauty out of it. So if glass breaks in your head today when Zev's teaching, don't get freaked out because next week or the week after, we'll make stained glass, right? Okay, let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful to have people in your body that are knowledgeable, who through experience and study and openness to you have uh, come to learn and know things about your heart. And we thank you for Zev. Thank you for the teaching gift that's in him. And we ask that you would, through the Holy Spirit, illuminate us today. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Oh. Okay. <clears throat> Am I audible? Good. People, of course, like to ask, how is it that I who was born and raised Jewish, became an Episcopal priest. I'm told that when I was younger, my father was worried about my future. And so he went to his rabbi and said, well, I'll tell you what, the rabbi said, why don't we do a test? Leave on the breakfast room table a book of Torah, open to the weekly Torah portion, a glass of wine, and a $20 bill. If he sits down to study the book, he's going to be a scholar. If he drinks the glass of wine, he's going to be a playboy. And if he takes the $20 bill, he's going to be a thief. So my father did that and was looking from behind the scenes. And when I came home from school, I looked at the breakfast room table. I drank the glass of wine, put the $20 bill in my pocket, and sat down to read, study the Torah portion. So my father was very confused by this. He went back to the rabbi and told him what had happened. And the rabbi said, oh my God, he's going to become an Episcopal priest. <laughs> it wasn't actually like that. I was traded for two nuns in a future draft choice. <laughs> now, all kidding aside, the very fact that Jewish people have over the years been so good at humor is because we've had to be. We've had to be in order to survive. Because for 2,000 years, 
The Jewish experience in the Christian world has been one of unrelenting prejudice and persecution. And so I'm going to be doing a lot of breaking glass today because what I'm going to discuss with you is Christian anti-Semitism. Christian anti-Semitism. And to do that, I feel in some ways like I'm playing a game of props from whose line is it anyway. I'm going to take that off, and I'm going to put this on. You all know what this is, don't you? Okay, this is a yarmulke. And for the next part of this talk, I am not a Christian. I am a Jew. And I am come here to tell you how we as Jews have experienced anti-Semitism, not just in the past, but right here and right now. And I'm going to suggest that there are basically three parts to anti-Semitism. Prejudice against Jews, Christian privilege, and theological anti-Judaism. Okay. The way I really wanted to start, some years ago, uh, my stepmother in Denver sent me a packet of materials which included old family letters, clippings, telegrams, and the one that really kind of caught my eye for tonight was this telegram together with a small newspaper clipping. When I say small, it's small and the print is small. And this is dated, um, well, I'm not sure, yeah, July 30th, 1936, from Kansas City, Missouri, to Mrs. Sam Rosenberg, that's my grandmother. Mama died last night. Funeral today, 3 p.m., Lewis Undertaking Parlors. Love, Sam, my grandfather, Sam. And here's the clipping, which is the death notice. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to have to do it this way. Mrs. Ada Rosenberg, age 59, passed away Wednesday evening at Menorah Hospital, survived by her husband, William Rosenberg, of the home, 3760 Wayne, two daughters, Mrs. Max Schwartz, Mrs. Francis, Miss Frances Rosenberg, both of the home, two sons, Samuel and Ralph Rosenberg, both of Denver, two sisters, Mrs. Abe Kine, and Mrs. Dora Levine, five grandchildren, funeral services, etc., etc. Her husband, William Rosenberg, is the person after whom I was named. And that was not his name in the old country. 
His name in the old country was Velvel Raschelbach. Now, he was not the first member of his family to come over. Uh, instead, it was his older brother who, when he got to Ellis Island, was asked his name, and he said Raschelbach, and he was asked to spell it. And he said, could spell it in Yiddish, in Polish, in Russian, but you know, couldn't spell it in English, and he said, oh, your name's Rosenberg. And so when Velvel Raschelbach came over, sponsored by his older brother, he became William Rosenberg, which is interesting. Because although it wasn't his real name, it was still recognizably Jewish. And that's a lot of the strategy that took place at Ellis Island when we came over. Why did we come over? We came over at that time, it was part of that great wave of migration, you know, through Ellis Island in the late 19th, very early 20th century, of people who were escaping from the poor standard of living in Eastern Europe, but in case of Jews especially, it was not just for economic opportunity, it was to escape persecution especially the Jews of Eastern Europe. And that's how all of my ancestors came over and why they came over. They were, in fact, refugees. They were, in fact, refugees. Three out of four of my grandparents were born in the old country. My grandmother, Nellie, Mrs. Sam Rosenberg, was the only one born in this country. She was born in Long Island. Be that as it may, they were lucky they came over when they did. Because after World War I and the Russian Revolution, the United States decided to close its doors against Eastern European emigration due to fears of socialism. And in fact, my grandfather Robbins, alias Yankel Rabinowitz, came over in part because he was a socialist and didn't want to become a rabbi like his mother wanted him to be. But in any event, that prevented many of the Jews of Eastern Europe from migrating to the United States between the wars. But after Hitler came to power, and many more Jews were seeking to flee to the safety of the United States, the door was slammed in their faces due to anti-Semitism in the State Department. And it was that more than anything that kept hundreds of thousands of Jews from finding safety who instead died in the Holocaust. I am lucky. I am lucky in my parentage because anti-Semitism could have cost me my existence. Let's look at, first of all, prejudice against Jews. There are two basic things that you would have to say combine to make prejudice against Jews. One is actual antipathy, negative feelings about Jews. And this is, in some ways, one of the most difficult to get a handle of in 21st century America, because, let's face it, it isn't cool to be known as an anti-Semite. It's definitely politically incorrect. And therefore, a lot of people, even if they harbor such feelings, they tend to keep them carefully under wraps, repressed, and unconscious. But it's the unconscious antipathy that sometimes creates some of the worst results. So just because you are unaware of any antipathy to Jews as such, don't think you're free from it. And we Jews certainly do not think that you are free from it. 
because we have learned that to survive, we have to assume the worst. And then there is the stereotyping. Stereotyping. Jews have been stereotyped by Christians for 2,000 years. The eternal Jew, the wandering Jew, the blood libel, all these things that have come up in the past. And one of the things that takes place in American culture even is this image, for example, of the Jew as the sharp businessman. Okay. And I was given a taste of this shortly after my conversion to Christianity by the rector who performed the baptism. I had gone in to talk to Father McGill about something, and he told a Jewish joke that involved the idea of Jews being sharp in business. And I said to him, Father McGill, do you realize how anti-Semitic that is? And he says, I'm not aware of any feelings about that. Some of my very best friends are Jews. He said this in all sincerity. I buried my head in my hands and I said, do you realize what you just said? Do you realize what you just said? Yeah. When you say that a certain group of people is extremely gifted in something, how is that a negative thing? Okay, because the image of the Jew as the sharp businessman is high capability, low ethics. That's the stereotype. That's the stereotype. It's not just the business acumen. It's the shysterism that is being implied. Okay? That's part of that stereotype. But it's not implied. I hate to tell you this. As a, I'm speaking as a Jew. All right? We have to assume the worst. You've heard of the concept of a left-handed compliment? A left-handed compliment is frequently a very subtle way of delivering a right hook. So one of the things that we need to be aware of, or that I should say you need to be aware of, is the unconscious bias that you have against Jewish people precisely because they are not Christian. And the stereotyping that goes on that is so much a part of our culture. Now the second thing is Christian privilege. The reason I put Christian privilege on this is that one of the things that it's very difficult for Christians to understand in the United States of America is the degree to which non-Christians are constantly running up against what we see as the hypocrisy of saying we have freedom of religion in this country. When in fact, the status of Christianity has been privileged since the founding of the country. Let me give a few examples. How many people here had to take the SATs? How many people here had to ask for a special date to take those SATs because they were on a Saturday? I did. How many people here, this is a narrower thing, how many people here have taken the graduate record exams, what we used to call the grad recs? Okay, we have a few people who had to take grad recs. How many people here had to purchase a bus ticket 
from Northfield to Minneapolis, Minnesota in the dead of winter to go up to take a Sunday administration of the grad recs. How many people here have had to wait in line at the attendance office at your high school in order to put in your excuse for having been absent on Christmas or Easter? We have to stand in line to put in our excuse at the excuse office because we were absent on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot and Pesach and Shavuot and we also had to do extra makeup work for the time lost in class. Do you begin to see how this works? Has anybody ever given you a hard time for wearing a cross? There are places in New York City where if I were wearing a black one like this, I would be taking my life in my hands. Because I would be attacked by thugs. Okay? Because the assumption is, oh, there goes a Jew. He must be from the Diamond District. He must be rich. Let's rob him. There were rabbis who actually advised, Orthodox rabbis, who advised their congregants that even though it is forbidden to carry money on Shabbat, that they always carry a $20 bill in case they get held up. These are things you guys don't need to think about, but we do constantly. I have a very good friend of mine from Temple Israel, John Strauss, who is a very skilled furniture maker and cabinet maker. He has a business right on Walnut Avenue, not far from the bus station where I work. I was sitting in Mugswigs on a Saturday. He came in to get a cup of coffee, and then he said, got to go back to work. I said, oh. He says, yeah, got to work on Saturdays. Why do you think the principal service of worship at Temple Israel is not on Saturday morning on the Shabbat, but on Friday evening, because most Jews have to work on Shabbat whether they want to or not. This is one of the most difficult things for Christians to be aware of, because it's like asking a fish to be aware of water. It's like asking a fish to be aware of water, and yet it's something that Jews have to confront all the time, all the time, in little subtle ways. You go to a grocery store in December, and you pay for your food, and the cashier says, Merry Christmas. God forbid you should say, I don't celebrate Christmas. Oh, what kind of a jerk are you? Okay, yes. workplace I don't make me say Merry Christmas please people say you ready for Christmas etc so there are those of us who are not participators in extra biblical holidays and therefore have received you know and so okay suddenly my sympathy level is much higher because of what you have just said because I've had Mm -hmm. to face it with my children in school being forced to do things that were not necessarily you know so I we are, I just want to say that in society, I have been said by my coworkers, you know, it offends me that you say you don't celebrate Christmas. And it offends me that you say you are not of a particular Christian religion, and so therefore you don't celebrate Christmas. And I've had to turn around and say, and yet you have your decorations and your music and your marry this and marry that all over the place, 24 hours a day, wherever I go, and I'm not allowed to say this offends me. I still got to go to work, still got to do it. My kids are still forced to do it. Thank you for sharing that. Jews have to put up with that every December. Jews have to put up with that every December. And get a lot of gruff sometimes when they say, maybe what you should say instead of Merry Christmas is Happy Holidays. 
something neutral. Okay? Now, it sort of reminds me, since I need to basically maybe break this up with a little humor, there was a teacher... (laughs) There was a teacher with her class who was... um, asking them how they celebrated Christmas. And one of the Catholic children said, oh, well, we always go to midnight mass and it's beautiful with the gorgeous music and they have incense and it's just beautiful. We just, it's just fantastic. And another kid says, well, we're Protestants and so, you know, we don't go to midnight mass, but what we do do is on Christmas Eve, we have a big family gathering and my mom plays the piano and we all sit around and sing Christmas carols and it's so lovely. And then there was a Jewish kid who said, well, we're Jewish, we don't celebrate Christmas, but my father owns a toy factory. (laughs) And so as soon as the shops close on Christmas Eve, we all go down to the factory and sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. This is one of the most subtle and difficult aspects of anti-Semitism to come to grips with because essentially people in a socially privileged position not only do not notice their privileged position but resent it when you suggest that maybe they might have to step down from it. But I come now to probably the diciest things here and get your brooms and dustpans out for broken glass. Theological anti-Judaism, point number three. There are a number of things. There are a number of things here that go very deep in terms of the troubled history of Judaism and Christianity. And here I have to basically call upon some of my experience as a Jewish convert to Christianity. And the bias, the theological bias revealed by certain terms that have been used to my face. One of the things that I find most offensive is when people refer to me as a completed Jew. What was I missing before, an arm? an ear, what was missing? No, the implication is that Judaism is an incomplete religion. That's the implication of that term. That somehow or other, if a Jew fails to accept Jesus, their religion is incomplete. And that Judaism in and of itself is not a complete, integral, whole religious tradition offering to its adherents real salvation. I need to remind you of a very interesting equation. Judaism minus Christianity equals Judaism. Judaism would have survived, in many cases far better, just as it is, just as integral as it is, just as whole as it is, just as complete as it is, if there had never been a Christianity. But, Christianity minus Judaism equals nothing. Nothing. Now, You might think this is a bit of a harsh statement, so let me basically state why I am writing these equations on the board. 
Because in a very real way, what this reveals, again, is a more subtle form of theological anti-Judaism, which is the tendency to see Judaism as a parent who, having given birth to Christ, has lost its historic function and transferred it to the church. And that Judaism and that Christianity is the successor religion to Judaism. And there is something that confronts a Jewish person absolutely every time we open a Christian Bible. Can anybody guess what that is? The Old Testament and the New Testament. This is something I honestly really have to appeal to you. Stop referring to the Hebrew Scriptures as the Old Testament. Stop doing it. Because the implication is that they've been superseded by something else. So let me give you another image to take away. And that image is not of a parent and child, but of two sisters, an older and a younger sister. The older sister, the, and the older and younger sister are arguing over their father's legacy, his last will and testament. And the older sister says, our father only gave one will and testament, and he also had lawyers to whom he gave oral instructions. I know this is a good audience to use this metaphor. Okay. He had attorneys and he gave them oral, and these, the lawyers together with that first will indicate, with that one will, indicate that I'm the heir. The younger daughter says, well, actually, our father gave a second will and testament, and we have the witnesses to prove that he gave it, and that will and testament and those witnesses say, I'm the heir. The older daughter will not accept the younger daughter's witnesses. The younger daughter will not accept the older daughter's lawyers. And unfortunately, there's no probate court in session till the end of days. That's the relationship of Judaism and Christianity. Because underneath this, again, is the assumption on the part of Christians that Judaism is the religion of the Older Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, totally ignoring the idea that is fundamental to all forms of Judaism in the modern age, Orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, renewal, that it is scripture plus rabbinic tradition. Say that again, please. It's scripture plus rabbinic tradition. The oral Torah. Okay. In other words, as Rabbi Lawrence Kushner put it, Jews are not so much the people of the book as the people of the interpretation of the book. And we here get to probably the diciest issue. Okay? The diciest issue. Because what we as Christians and Jews are arguing about is differing interpretations of the same scriptures. That as Jews, we understand the scriptures through the medium of rabbinic tradition. And how do you as Christians understand the Hebrew scriptures? Christologically. Okay. Now, what has to be said 
is that both rabbinic tradition and Christological interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures are interpretations. They are competing midrashes, if you will, to use that great Hebrew term. But from a Jewish point of view, I'm not asking you to buy this, but understand it. When you, as Christians, take our scriptures and reinterpret them Christologically, and then you have the infernal gall to quote that back to us as if we don't understand our own texts. How dare you? How dare you? This is one where it's really interesting because I remember my uh, teacher, one of my teachers at Sewanee, uh, who was our homiletics coach, she taught me a lot of valuable things in homiletics. She didn't teach me too much else of value, but I remember in one of our early sessions where she said, um, do you think maybe the church is missing a great opportunity to evangelize the Jewish people? And I said, Edna, in the wake of the Holocaust, the only mission of the Christian church towards the Jewish people is one of atonement and listening. One of atonement and listening. And this really, I mean, and, you know, from a Jewish point of view, let me focus on just one term, Messiah. Messiah. How do we Jews understand the term Messiah? Very straightforwardly, the Messiah is a direct descendant of David who will restore the Davidic reign and establish as God's viceroy on earth a universal reign of justice, peace, and love throughout the world. That's what the term Messiah means. Where's the kingdom? Where's the universal reign of justice, peace, and love? The job description hasn't been met yet. What Christians do, as we Jews see it, is that you name Jesus as the Messiah and then redefine the term in terms of what Jesus has already done. And we look at that and say, huh? We look at that and say, boy, have you misappropriated a term. It's you who don't understand what the word Messiah means. Now, is there common ground? Yes. The messianic mission of Jesus has not yet been fulfilled and will not be fulfilled until he brings about a universal reign of justice, peace, and love throughout the entire world. So that for, Christ, for Christians to call Jesus the Christ is at best aspirational. And so, and then there is another problem, and that is when you start reading in the New Testament, there are certain portions that have a decidedly anti-Jewish polemic tone to them, particularly in the book of Acts and in the Gospel of John. What you need to understand to a great extent is that what these represent is an argument between Jewish sects. Because at the time of Jesus and the apostles, actually, you know, just the apostles, because there was no Christianity when Jesus was around. There was just Jesus and his disciples. But during the age of the apostles, essentially, Christianity was a Jewish sect. It was a Jewish sect. 
And so what you're looking at is the record of arguments between different groups of Jewish believers who held different understandings of what Judaism meant and the way forward. And then when you take those intermural Jewish arguments out of the context of Judaism or Judaisms and make them the scriptures of a Gentile church, those arguments, if not properly contextualized, become an anti-Jewish polemic. Do you see the importance of the shift here? If you take an intramural, intra-Jewish argument and make it part of the scriptural heritage of a non-Jewish Gentile faith, those same arguments become anti-Semitic. Okay? It's much like the argument currently going on in the South about the Confederate flag. The defenders of the flag are saying, that's part of our heritage. The African-American community has said it is a symbol of racism. Symbols don't just stay the same over time. As context changes, meaning changes. And so something that may not have been racist at one time in our culture now is. So the same thing. Something that was not anti-Semitic when written can become anti-Semitic in use. Something that was not anti-Semitic when written can become anti-Semitic in use. Now, I'm going to pause at this point because, you know, obviously this is not a complete presentation of the subject, but I really and truly need to, at this point, pause, maybe a couple of questions if you have any, because now I need to move on to the real point. Can you give an example? Can you give an example of how that intra judaic discussion is it, it changes into an anti-Semitic position. Can you elaborate? Because I don't understand. Very easily. Very easily. Is it that there is a conversation taking place among a group of people criticizing one another's views and then we take that as Gentiles as a criticism of the whole? Yes. Got it. Okay, and let me give you the classic example. One of the three holy hierarchs in the Orthodox Christian tradition is St. John Chrysostom, who commented extensively on the Gospel of John. John Chrysostom was bothered by something some of his parishioners were doing, as in Constantinople, where he was the archbishop. They were attending Jewish festivals which were in some ways so much more interesting than anything the church was doing. And he decided he had to put a stop to this. So largely through his work in commentary, he came up with the term Christ killers. This is St. John Chrysostom who invented the term Christ killers. Okay, and I hate to tell you this, someone once asked me, you know, it's interesting, at one point about 30% of the leadership of Buddhism in this country were people who were Jewish. What is it about Buddhism that attracts so many Jewish people? And this person was a Christian and I looked at him and I said, maybe because no one's ever killed a Jew in the name of the Buddha. Yes. Can I throw one example in? Yeah. Are you, uh, are you aware of the way hip hop artists are going 
You guys know anything about hip hop? Do you know how hip hop uses language? That's a culture, it's African American culture. They have a way of talking to one another. Please don't ever talk to a black person that way. Don't ever use that language, right? Because the, the rule is th they have their own rules of how they can talk to each other. Don't ever presume as a white person that you can do. Is that, uh, Zev, a little bit, uh, a little bit of an analogy? Yes, very good analogy. Okay. Like if you like hip hop, listen to it. But don't think that you're privileged to talk that way. Okay, we got a question here, sorry. Zev, your earlier illustration about my best friends are Jews reminds me also that so often people say my best friends are blacks. Is there a characteristic of human nature that is common to this? Yes, it's called denial of your own shadow. The denial of your own shadow because we naturally tend to fear that which is different, especially the less we know about that other. But we also know that this is not a worthy feeling to have. And so we try to hide it and we euphemize it beside such terms as some of my best friends. Okay, now. Time to change props again. Anybody know what this is? Nope. What? Nope. This is a Palestinian kufia. If I put it on my head with a headband, you would surely know. I bought this recently it comes from a factory in Palestine, made by Palestinians, the last factory in Palestine that is making their headgear, their kufias. Because now, I want to say how my experience in anti-Semitism gives me a deep sense of sympathy for people suffering from Islamophobia. Brooms, please. <laughs> okay. Islamophobia. And it has some of the... S yes? Are we talking about Islamophobia among American Christians or among Jewish people? We are talking about Islamophobia among American Christians. That's why I didn't erase the word Christian. We are talking about Christian Islamophobia. And the first is prejudice against Muslims. Now remember I said there were two main parts of prejudice against a group. Those two parts were antipathy and stereotyping. I got news for you. Because anti-Semitism is so unfashionable, what we have had to put up with since World War II is a piece of cake compared with what our Muslim brothers and sisters have had to put up with. It's just a piece of cake. There were even people in the Jewish community, for example, who after 9-11 said, well, this should take the heat off of us for a while. The antipathy the, of, of Christian groups against Muslims is not only palpable, it is highly vocal and it is open because there is no social taboo against Islamophobia the same way there is a social taboo against anti-Semitism. It's perfectly kosher to be Islamophobic in public. And I got news for you. I care to guess which side I'm on in this? 
And as for stereotyping, because most Christians have no knowledge of Islam or Muslims, the only thing we know is what we see in the media or in the blogosphere. And that is nothing but stereotypes. Nothing but stereotypes. Yeah. As for Jews not being preserved as dangerous, I hate to tell you this, but as a member, of, former member of the Jewish community, been there, seen it, own the T-shirt. Why do you think the Nazis rounded us up? Yeah, we were perceived as a threat. Well, that's the whole problem. You tend to fear what won't fight back. Look, folks, I'm not saying that there is not Islamist terrorism. But this is the activities of a small minority of the Muslim community. And the problem of a stereotype is that you are taking the activities of a small minority of the group, of a minority group, and making that the norm. And so we say, all Muslims are terrorists. All Muslims represent a threat. Believe you me, they have more to fear from us than we from them. I work at the bus station for Barron's Bus Lines, selling intercity bus tickets. Last week, I had someone come to the window to buy a ticket for his son to go to Columbus, probably to go to the university there, that, whatever that university is down there. Um, and the last name was Singh. Singh, S-I-N-G-H. And I looked and I said, oh, are you Sikhs? And he said, yes, we are. I said, well, you know, I, I notice you're not wearing a turban or your beard. He says, that's so hard here. The first person killed in a hate crime after 9-11 was a Sikh. That's what Islamophobia does. Yeah. Um, if I may play devil's advocate for a second. Um, out of the three Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and um, Islam, Judaism was the first. Mm -hmm. Jews were God's chosen people, and he started with them. Christianity and Islam moved on from that with choosing saviors or other prophets and proclaiming that it was the same religion. But out of those three isn't Judaism the safest religion, I guess you would call it? Because no matter what, you are still chosen by God. You are still... Ask a Palestinian about how safe Judaism is. Safe as in in salvation, where God, you're not wrong. You can't be wrong if you believe in God. In that way. You can be wrong about Jesus, you can be wrong about Muhammad, but you don't have any of those. We can't. We believe that we're not. Listen, I, I spent five years in Israel. The third year I spent in a Talmudic academy that was in the middle of the West Bank and was part of the settler movement. Before that, I spent a year at the academy which was the ideological hub of the settler movement. Don't tell me Judaism is safe. There are people who are taking Jewish texts and sincerely understanding them and using them as a pretext 
for the future ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. That's not safe. Like if uh, it's, a, it's a form of uh, the old uh, uh, betting gamble, you know, if I have to bet one way or the other on whether God exists or not, well, I'll bet that God does and then I can't lose. Of the three competing religions, since they all share a common uh, form of uh, belief in God, wouldn't it be the safest to choose Judaism and then God couldn't be mad or upset with you with that choice? No. Pascal's wager breaks down when it comes to the theological argument among the Abrahamic faiths. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, if I were to run a modern version of Pascal's wager in terms of what is the safest religion to adopt, I would look at all three Islamic, uh, Abrahamic traditions and say, a plague on all your houses. Be a Buddhist. <laughs> okay. Christian privilege remains the same. I have friends who drive for Sarda. Some of them wear a cross. They can get away with that. Some of them wanted to wear hijab. They can't. The hijab, the head cover. Permitted, not, not permitted by the state or the sardis? It No. Or by social it's practice. not safe. It's not safe. Just as it is not safe for that Sikh to wear his turban. Okay? You don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to get attacked on the street for wearing a cross. A Muslim woman has to worry that she's going to get attacked on the street if she's wearing hijab. And to add insult to injury, then we have the infernal gall to go up to that woman and say, oh, you're so oppressed. knowing nothing about it. And as far as theological anti, and I guess I just have to say anti-Islam, it's going on all the time, and it has gone on, certainly, and John will probably get into this more next week, since the 11th century in spades. Okay. And just a few things to toss out to you. That whole thing that I mentioned about hijab, we see it as a mark of oppression. And so we have a tendency to approach a Muslim woman wearing a hijab with the idea we have to liberate this person. The best way we can liberate them is to leave them free to express their religion publicly without fear. Because in the Arabia of Muhammad's day, for a woman to be veiled was a mark of royalty. It was a mark of royalty. Only the aristocracy and the royalty, the women veiled themselves. Okay, so the, the oppression, we approach them as being oppressed because of our stereotype that they're Exactly. I thought you were talking about them being oppressed by our society. Yes. I'm talking about both. Got it. Okay. I'm talking about both. Well, they're oppressed by our society. Okay. Um, but I think one of the best illustrations that we have about that, if I had to pick a term to give you a handle, just as between Jews and Christians, it's difficult to understand and dialogue on the subject of the meaning of the term Messiah, 
Try what we heard about last week from Dr. Islambouli, Sharia. The way the term Sharia is used in our media is again a stereotype based on theological bias. Based on theological bias. Now, I could say a whole lot more, but we've run out of time. I suppose I can put this back on now. Maybe I'll put this on too. What? No, I'm not wearing all three because of all Pascal's dilemma. What I am doing is making a plea for dialogue. In fact, I would say trialogue. We are so guilty of condemning what we do not understand. And because we do not understand it, we fear it. And because we fear it, we hate it. Thank you. Almighty God, you have revealed yourself to your children in so many ways. Guide all of us, especially those of us who understand ourselves as the children of Abraham, to a deeper understanding and knowledge of each other's ways so that your realm of shalom, of peace, of salam may be brought nearer. Amen.